0: Good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. If this is your first time here, I hope you feel right at home. We have um, bags of freshly baked coffee beans right outside those doors on a shelf. And if this is your first time here, I hope you'll Hope somebody who knows will hand you a a bag of coffee beans. Wink, wink. And if uh, nobody does, just grab one. We would love to just give you one uh, this morning. Thanks for being here with us. We're grateful to have you with us and pray that this is an encouraging and challenging morning together. Today is our birthday in like the broadest sense that I can imagine. Is it anybody's, is it any individual's birthday by chance here today? Nobody this morning either. So this is the birthday of the church. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And it's the day that traditionally is observed as the beginning of the church. It is our birthday in a sense. Pentecost is a Greek word that simply means 50 days. And this was a... Um, the Greek word Pentecost was the Greek's name for a Jewish feast that was celebrated every year along with a bunch of other different Jewish feasts um, that go along with just like American holidays. There's like a whole handful of them. There's a whole handful of Jewish feasts or festivals. And we see these in the story of Jesus because it's sort of like the thing that marks the passing of time in the ministry of Jesus. So here's a few of the examples. There's the Passover feast, Then there's um, the Feast of First Fruits, or sometimes it's called the Feast of... No, that's the Feast of First Fruits. And then there's a feast called Pentecost. That's today. Sometimes Pentecost is called the Feast of uh, Weeks. So um, here's what these things mean. Passover is the celebration of the freeing of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. So this is a super old feast. Celebrated for 1,500 years before Jesus' birth, even. But this is the story we've been sharing in our Sunday mornings for the last several weeks, is the freeing of the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and into freedom. The Passover was the, the festival that celebrated that. The first fruits is an agricultural feast that celebrates the first fruits, the first barley fruit, to be specific, and more generally, the promise of new life. And then 50 days later is the Feast of Pentecost, which celebrates the fullness of life or the fullness of the harvest. So here's the three kind of big ideas from the feasts that characterize this time of year from a Jewish and then becomes a Christian perspective. Freedom, new life, and full life. Freedom from the old life, new life, and then fullness of life. Now here's where it gets really interesting, okay? By the time of Jesus... These feasts have been celebrated for 1,000 to 1,500 years. They've been celebrating Passover for 1,500 years and the agricultural feasts almost that long. These feasts were culturally significant for the people. They were spiritually significant for the people. And they had been for like 1,000 plus years. But then there's more more to the story still to be told. There's this whole other layer of significance that is yet to be revealed, and it's revealed through the ministry of Jesus. Here's a question. What feast were Jesus and his disciples celebrating the night before he was killed, when they had the last supper? Do you remember what the supper was? Did anyone know this? It was Passover, right? So they're together, gathered together to remember, like we do at any holiday, what had happened before and why that mattered. So they'd gathered to remember that 1,500 years earlier, their people had been set free from slavery in Egypt. How did that happen? Well, we've been telling the story for weeks, but it culminates in God telling Moses to tell the Hebrew people, sacrifice a lamb, smear the blood of the lamb over the door of your house, Tonight, this plague is going to run through the whole country of Egypt. The firstborn are going to die, but death will pass over the houses marked by the blood of the lamb. Literally, they're telling this story while Jesus is passing around the wine and the bread. And then what happens within the next 24 hours? Jesus is killed, right? Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb, not just for one race, but for the whole world in his death on the cross. And it's, that's, that is the kind of the ticket of freedom from sin and death that we are still benefiting from. Then just a few days later, on Sunday, all the Jews are, ga- are gathered to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. The beginning of new life, symbolized by the first, the first fruits you can pick, right? And that's, that's Sunday, the resurrection. That's the day of the resurrection of Jesus. So you have this, for a thousand years, they've associated this feast with newness, new life, and that's the day that Jesus resurrects from the dead. Paul captures this, the Apostle Paul points this out and is explicit about it in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. So he calls Jesus, and then he says, and when he comes, and then those who belong to him later. So he Paul names Jesus the name of the festival that they because they know the meaning of the festival. They're not super clear on the meaning of Jesus yet. That's what Paul's preaching about is what the significance of this man Jesus and why he lived. So what they do, what he does, is he captures this rich symbolically and historically and culturally and spiritually um, significant practice or feast, it'd be like, this is your Christmas, or this is your thing. It is Christ the, the first fruits. And then, 50 days after that, the Feast of Pentecost, huge party, Jews from all over the region gathering back in Jerusalem to celebrate the fullness of the harvest, the fullness of life, and that's when God fills the Christians at the time. There's only 120 Christians in the world, and that's when God pours out His Spirit on The followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, which we think of as the day that God filled the the Christians with the Spirit, right? But you got to understand, it's got a thousand-year history that speaks fullness and abundance, right? And the joy that comes, and that's when... So this is just another layer. Can you imagine... I think of layers in terms of like minutes or hours, maybe days, right? And we're talking about layers that are thousands of years thick, where God just continues to reveal more and more of the significance of the story. Anyway, here's Acts chapter 2. Let me read this to you. Here's Luke's account of this day of Pentecost. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Why are they staying there? Because it's Pentecost feast, right? It's a big party. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of those who are speaking Galileans? There was a region in the north called Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. The fishermen that he recruits, they're from Galilee. They've got an accent, they know Galileans, they stand out like sore thumbs. The weird thing is all these Galileans are all speaking languages from, then he, Luke names, 15 different world areas, all of which are hearing their these languages proclaiming the wonders of God. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, is what they say. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So you got a whole bunch of faithful Jewish pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem, the holy city, and they hear the wonders of God, which they believe they're there as God-fearing Jews. The weird thing is they expected to hear the wonders of God proclaimed in the native tongue, Hebrew. They're hearing the wonders of God. Imagine you... um, you know, one of these, this is the diaspora, right? The Jews have been spread out all over the place. So as they go to like an Arab, a, a, an Arab country where they speak a completely different language, they come back, they expect to hear the wonders of God being proclaimed in Hebrew, but they hear it proclaimed in the language of the country from which they just came, and then the, so on and so on. So they're just like, what is going on? Some people say, it's because those Jesus people are drunk. <laughs> which is an explanation, I guess. And it's so funny to me that Peter actually engages that because it sounds ridiculous to me. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. It's only 9 in the morning. Like, give, give us a little bit of credit, which is just so hilarious to me. And then Peter, and this is what's so wild about Peter, 52 days ago. It's easy to lose track of this narrative, isn't it? It's only been 52 days since Peter, paralyzed by fear, denied any association with Jesus whatsoever, denied even knowing Jesus. It was only 52 days before this day. Now, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up in front of this multinational crowd in the most religiously intense city in the world and says, let me explain this to you. And he preaches so powerfully that 3,000 Jews embrace Jesus as their Messiah and become Christians. And the church is born, right? It's birthday to the church. This is how it goes. So these three feasts, which were long established in the culture of the Jews, are now fulfilled and now even overflowing with new significance. you got the death of Jesus, Passover, the birth of the, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, and then the Holy Spirit filling the disciples on Pentecost, and the church is born. So it's this fuller understanding of the significance of this Jewish feast called Pentecost that we, and all Christians around the whole world and throughout time, celebrate today as the birth of the church of Jesus. The birth of, we might put it like this, if church is like a word that's just picked up too much mud along the road for you, if this is the birth of the community of followers of Jesus marked by love and power, right? Not just a bunch of people remembering Jesus, as somebody who lived and died and and isn't relevant anymore. But the the birth of a community which has continued to be animated by the power that Jesus relied on in his ministry, which is the very power of God his Father. So I want to, I hope that we can see Pentecost as not just one of any kind of random list of holidays that we might kind of point to, but I hope that we can see it as part of a greater story, um, part of a holistic message that's being told throughout history and then proclaimed by the church and hopefully lived out by the church continually. We've printed in your sermon notes this circular diagram. And this is old news for many of you and brand new, never even heard of this for many of you. This is called the Christian calendar. There's all kinds of calendars, right? There's the Gregorian calendar and the Alexandria, Alexandrian calendar. We visited Ethiopia. I think I've told you some of you this story before. I think we visited Ethiopia, Steve and I, in 2013 but there it was like 2006 because it's a different calendar and it was a month that we'd never even heard of or something like that so the the Christian church has a calendar as well here's a summary of how that calendar works new year is kind of upper right hand corner the new year for the Christian calendar begins the first sunday of advent it's a season that prepares for the birth of christ which we celebrate on christmas right then follow this is big picture Then there's a season called Epiphany, which means I see it or I recognize the reality of it. There's two stories that are celebrated on Epiphany. The wise men coming and recognizing the divinity of the baby Jesus. Sometimes you have a little set in your house that depicts that. They recognize who Jesus is. Another traditional story told in Epiphany is the baptism of Jesus. That's significant because the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love and I'm pleased with him. So we oh. I see who this Jesus is. And then Jesus begins his ministry, which is just three years of epiphanies all over the place, people recognizing who Jesus is. After epiphany comes this long season. It's not a feast, though. It's a fast. It's a season of fasting. It's called Lent. It culminates in the day of Jesus' assassination, which is Good Friday. It's followed by Easter, the day of the resurrection. And so then we have this long season of feasting, which just actually ended last week, the season of Easter, but then we just roll into another feast, uh, and that's the season of Pentecost and I want you to see two things here. see that about half of the year you're rehearsing the story of Jesus birth to resurrection, and then the rest of the year you're living out you're living your life in response to that that's the that's the intention of this calendar that's why putting something in order and not just a, you know, a pile of random truths. That's why the order matters because we're invited to live. Traditionally, I don't know if it printed very accurately, but traditionally the season of Pentecost is green. It's like the season of growth. So we tell the story, and then we live in light of the story. Some people say the first half of the Christian year is the story of Jesus, and the second half of the Christian year is the story of Jesus' church, and that's the story that's still being told, and we just repeat it. Because we just go deeper and deeper and deeper into it all of the time. So the big question that runs like a current from today until you like start pulling out Christmas decorations in a few months is this question, how do we live in light of that story? How do we faithfully respond to and reflect to the world the story of Jesus' uh, miraculous conception to resurrection and ascension, and then the filling of the Holy Spirit. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we live in light of um, the story of Jesus in this time and in this culture? Another way of putting that question would be, what does a community that's filled with the Holy Spirit look like? It's another way of putting it. What is a community who follows Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit, what is that? What, what do we actually look like? And that's the challenge and the invitation that we get to lean into for the next several months and we get to work out. So in the next few weeks, we're going to address a bunch of topics and we'll hear from several people in our church who will basically preach sermons focused on trying to help us um, arrive at a greater place of clarity about the significance of living in and with the Holy Spirit and then calling us into growing in our understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit following Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God the Father, okay? So that's where we're headed. I thought I'd kick off the series today um, by giving kind of a painting a quick picture of the two primary ways that Western modern Christianity has understood what it means to be filled with the Spirit or to have a life in the Holy Spirit. And, And that may seem kind of a specific and but it's so broad I had to like come at it from one angle right so this fascinates me and, and I wanted to share this with you mostly I would say the modern Western church has ignored the Holy Spirit. I mean compared to most of Christian history the modern Western and by by modern and western I'm thinking of Christian traditions in Europe and North America like in the last four or five hundred years okay, since the Protestant Reformation. Mostly we have ignored the holy spirit because mostly the ch- you could argue you can make an argument that the church has been more influenced by the enlightenment by the industrial revolution by modernist thinking by scientific method so anything mysterious anything supernatural anything spiritual is inherently suspicious for we educated sophisticated moderns right so as a result we've largely ignored the holy spirit there's even a tradition in the American church that's spread all over the world, in my opinion, unfortunately, it's called cessationism. And it's the teaching that the role of the Holy Spirit, the active role, the active life of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit ceased. That's where cessation comes from. Ceased after the apostles' death. Once they got the Bible written, they say, that's all we need. It's like a, people joke that their trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Um, it's not, it's not the Trinity, all right? It's, fu- so, so there's a whole, there's even a tradition, they're, they're, they're Christians. I mean, they love Jesus, but they, they have completely ignored, um, the role of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe the Western church has done a great job teaching about the Holy Spirit or experiencing, demonstrating what it looks like to have a life in the Spirit, but there are exceptions, and I hope that we can lean into these exceptions and grow in this area. There are whole Christian tribes, and ours actually is one of them. Emmaus is part of the Church of the Nazarene. It's one of the churches which has held up the role and the the, the identity of the Spirit and the role of the Spirit in community life and in walking with Christ as a critical piece of the whole story. Several others have done the same thing. But of those groups, traditions, denominations, movements, which have held up to a, a relatively robust view of the Holy Spirit, they, they kind of come down into two categories. One group focuses on the, the the Spirit is here to fill us with love. And the other group says to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with power. So you got your love people and you got your power people. Now this is a huge, broad-stroke generalization to try to make a point. But, but this is this is what I want to invite you to consider for a second. In other words, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Some say it means to be filled with love. And some say it means to be filled with power. Let me talk about the love group for a second. Maybe you can identify. This is like, like a personality test. You can decide, I think I'm a lover or uh, I'm a power. All right, so the, some groups or traditions that have primarily taught that being filled with the Holy Spirit is about love. They teach that the Spirit enables us to love God. We can't do that by ourselves. The Spirit enables us to actually love God. To have an authentic devotion to God. That means to want to obey God. Not just to be pressured to obey God or obligated or I'm going to be beat up if I don't. No, I actually want to obey God because I actually love God. These Spirit-filled love people root this understanding in the Bible, and they focus on verses like the, the prophecies from the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 36, where God says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, it's not, come on, try harder, do it. It's, I will give you the spirit that will cause you to desire to, to follow me. Paul is another example in several places in his letters. He emphasizes this idea of being filled with the spirit so that you can be enabled to love. In Romans 5, he says, God's love has been poured out into our lives through the Holy Spirit, who he has who has been given to us? This is a gift. The Spirit. To the Galatians, he says, "I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh." The context there is, I don't know. I can't follow God, Jesus. I can't do the things Jesus asks me to do, and Paul's response is. You need to walk according to this other power, this power of the Spirit will make you want to follow Jesus. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, like set you apart thoroughly. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this idea of complete surrender, right? complete abandonment, complete devotion to God. So the focus of these groups is on the Holy Spirit's ability to fill a person with love, um, the uh, the potential of having a pure heart, like actual pure heart toward God, free from sinful uh, addiction and compulsion. This is the idea of total devotion. These are groups that emphasize the doctrine of sanctification. They talk about holiness all of the time. We are one of these groups. We have an optimistic view of the Spirit's ability, to change a person, that you can actually overcome addiction, not by your own strength, but by the power of the Spirit that is uh, given you so that your life can be transformed. This is not love group's only message about the Spirit, but it's the primary message about the Spirit, that the Spirit is given to enable us to love. When it comes to Pentecost, to being filled with the Spirit, some focus on love. And then there's another group. It's another tradition, another set of denominations. They also have a robust view of the Holy Spirit. Their view of the Holy Spirit is that when filled with the Spirit, you're filled with power. It's very demonstrative. It's out there. You can see it. There's the power of God that is enabling uh, the followers of Jesus to do all these wonderful things, to preach, to heal, to have an impact on culture, to make a difference in the world. Friends, these people also root their perspective on being filled with the Spirit in the Bible as well. You got passages like Jesus being quoted in Acts chapter 1 where he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses all over the place, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And Acts is filled with story after story after story. Acts 19, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they speak speak in other tongues and they prophesied. They were enabled by a power that is not their own to speak a language that they didn't even learn in school and to tell the truth, to prophesy, to speak the, the, the word of God. This is a mysterious supernatural power. Paul talks in several places about being um, filled with gifts of the Spirit. To the Corinthians, he says, each one of you has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he lists spiritual gifts like hospitality, mercy, faith, healing, preaching, teaching. You've been given these gifts, these powers, to do more effective work in the world. It's for the common good, is what he's saying. Other passages refer to preaching in the power of the spirit, discerning the will of God by the power of the spirit, healing people by the power of the spirit, casting out demons by the power of the spirit, standing bravely in the face of persecution by the power of the spirit. So when it comes to Pentecost, this other group says, when it comes to being filled with the spirit, it's all about power. So the natural tendency of the people who focus on being filled with the Spirit is about love. The natural tendency is to talk about the internal. It's to talk about the heart, right? Your condition, your relationship with God. We're looking for a pure heart. We're looking for a true desire, like a deep inner spirituality that pulls us towards God, makes us want relationship with God. This group, the natural tendency of focusing on power is this group's focusing on, man, we're going to go make a difference in the world, We're going to go engage brokenness all over the planet. We're going to walk into the dark places. So this is a focus on the internal. This is a focus on the external or the playing out of it. The emphasis on love addresses the problem of sin that we continue to wrestle with inside. The emphasis on power addresses the problem of sin that we continue to wrestle with on the outside. All these societal sins and and racism and, and, and problems of justice and things like that. So which is it? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Is it love or is it power? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, should you be expected to love, be filled with love, or to be filled with power? Uh, in other words, is, what does is the life of a person filled with the Holy Spirit look like? Does it look like a life characterized by profound love for God, or does it look like passionate engagement with your neighbor, with your world? If we were to totally caricature the whole question, is the ideal the monk, completely devoted to God in his cell, or is the ideal the missionary, blazing with passion, just crushing all barriers, running into parts of culture that nobody else is willing to go to? What's the ideal? It's both, right? It's both. It's a, the the, the either-or thing, as it almost always is, is like a false uh, distinction because it's both. I feel like it's our inability to actually grasp the fullness of the gospel that keeps pushing us into these narrow, well, it's this, not this. Clearly the Bible is saying it's both. It is love and it's power, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit purifies our hearts and equips us for remarkable effects of service or demonstrations of service to the world. Each church is gonna have its own emphasis, I'm sure, its own sort of giftedness, But clearly the Bible reveals us both, it's love and it's power. And this is what happens at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus um, rises from the dead. The church is filled with the Spirit. Frankly, until until Pentecost, the 120 Christians are mostly characterized by fear and vulnerability. So think about that mostly characterized by fear and vulnerability. We only get a few glimpses of them. They're going back to their old jobs. They're locked in rooms. They're afraid of people. The same power structure is still in charge, the same one that killed Jesus. So they have reason to be concerned. And then from Acts 2 and forward, you've got like almost a different, but it's the same people. Now this community is characterized by remarkable love, Remarkable love, love that makes you notice, and profound power. I mean, they're healing people who can't walk and never could, right? They're speaking truth to the, to the system that killed Jesus, and they're not even fazed by it. They're like, don't ever go talk about Jesus again. And they're like, sorry, we can't stop talking about it. And they go out, and they just keep doing it, right? So you got love for God, love for one another, love that's sacrificial, love that gives, love that shares stuff. Love based on the love of Jesus, which means it's not dependent on merit. Means it's unconditional love. Love that therefore is not bound by normal limits like race or culture. It's a love that's to be extended, Jesus even explicitly says, to enemies. Remarkable love. Crazy love. And not just love, but profound power. And not power as we might think of it in terms of political power or military power. Not power that is flavored at all by fear or death or assault or punish, right? It's this power. It's this life-giving power. It's this generative power. It's this power to bring something that didn't used to exist into being. It's the power to heal, power to serve, power to stand against evil in confidence. It's a more organic power than most of the power we see on TV with explosions and yelling. It's like the power of a seed that can become a sycamore tree. It's this powerful power, Uh, but it's a different kind of power. Okay, here's the summary. The way of Jesus is the way of love, right? That's what he demonstrates. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And the way of Jesus is the way of power. And the way we follow the way of Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and good luck right? Jesus says, follow me and I will be with you always. Wait, as Melissa just said, wait for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I will enable you to follow me. And not to get into the deep theological weeds too far, but this is what Jesus did his whole life on earth anyway. He kind of surrendered his own access to his own divinity and he lived dependent fully on the Holy Spirit to model for you and I how to faithfully follow God. So we're, we're being called to do the same thing Jesus did. People are like, well, of course he did it. He was Jesus. Well, he also depended on the Holy Spirit like we, for, for that season of his life, like we are called to as well. Friends, finally, here's why this is good news. Okay, here's why this is good news. If you need a stronger, more potent, more consistent love for God, you can ask God to be filled with his Spirit. With his Holy Spirit. That's good news. If you need a more um, generous love for your neighbor, for your spouse, for your kids, the message isn't, come on, bro, get off your problem. No, it's ask the, the, ask the God who loves you to fill you with his Holy Spirit. To enable you to be filled with love and the ability to do what he's called you to do. That's why this is good news. Do you need love? Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And secondly, this is good news because if you need power to serve, if there's a need and you're aware of it and you're like, I don't think I can actually engage this or you're exhausted and, and, or you're ill-equipped, it's not the end of the story because you can ask God to fill you with his Spirit to empower you by his Spirit. Amen. So here's what I've tried to do this morning. I've tried to basically uh, create a a short history of the Pentecostal church, uh, of the holiness movement within modern Christianity, which typically falls into churches that land in two categories. There's the love kind of churches, and there's the power kind of churches. And what I'm telling you this morning is this. I need both, like now. I need both. I need a full dose of the love, and I need a full dose of the power. And this week as I was praying through this, I was thinking about it like this. I need a love that is more powerful. That's what I need. I need a love for people that is more powerful than my selfishness, than my resentment, than the thing they said to me three weeks ago that makes it hard for me to love them, right? I need a love that is more powerful. And I also need power that is more loving Right, because I mean I can win a debate. I'm just I can I can convince. I can raise my voice. I I don't need more of that. I need a power that is more loving. I need I need more um, powerful love. That's what I need. And I need um, I need a love that is. I need a power that is more loving. Love and power. So in the coming weeks and throughout this season of Pentecost, we're going to be exploring what it means to live in the spirit of Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do this morning, friends, is simply ask you to join me, write it down in your journal, put it on a sticky note in your fridge, I don't know, whatever it takes. To, I, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer that I'm going to pray this summer. This is going to be my summer prayer. God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. This is not a once and done thing, despite what some have taught. Je- or Paul teaches be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. Be continually filled. We are leaky buckets. We leak Holy Spirit everywhere, right? You can be filled with the Holy Spirit in the morning and your kid comes out of his bedroom and you're like, err. And you're right? You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually. There's no shame in that. We need to be just continually breathing this in. Friends, that's the solution. It's at least the solution to any problem that is rooted in a lack of love or a lack of power. That covers a lot of my problems, frankly. So would you join me with that? Let's pray this summer to be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit, characterized by love and power. Let's pray to be families that are filled with the Holy Spirit, characterized by love and power. Let's pray to be individuals who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God full of love, full of power. Amen? Amen. God, we look to you for help. We want to engage. We want to cooperate. We want to be disciplined. We want to do the hard things. But at the end of the day, it's not by our own power. And we're not trying to generate love all by ourselves. I pray for grace um, for us as individuals and for us as a church community that more and more increasingly we would be characterized by love and power, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, to the glory of God the Father, amen. Amen.